Happy Easter, everyone. Happy Easter. He is risen. He is, he is risen indeed. I think we're supposed to say that three times. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And he is risen. He is risen indeed. <laughs> Happy Easter. And what a beautiful, unbelievable, nice day. I mean, I remember years where it's pouring down. You got, you know, snowing or whatever. So this is awesome. Uh, let's open prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for sending your Son. Lord, we thank you that he paid the price for our sins. Lord, we thank you that now, somehow, you've chosen us to represent even you. And Lord, we pray that we can do that by our love. And Lord, would you bless Dave and the services today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So... Not having a lot of time to prepare this morning, lying in my notes, um, I thought we'd start out in uh, Psalm 118. I don't know if you guys knew this or not, this is an Easter song. You'll probably wonder, why is this an Easter song? <laughs> I think it's an Easter um, I'll go ahead and read it in uh, the New American Standard. Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifices with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Why do you think I call that an Easter song? <laughs> That's correct. Exactly. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is a psalm about the entry of Jesus into the world, the entry of God into humanity to redeem us. And that 
This day, what we celebrate today, is the day that the Lord has made. He sought from before the foundation of the earth. And I'm not talking about the beautiful sunshine that Tim was talking about, because that is wonderful. It is great. But the day that the Lord raised from the dead, conquered death, that day was the day that the Lord had made. And we should rejoice and be glad in it. That's what Easter is about. It's about the resurrection of Christ. So, on that solemn note, we're actually in Hebrews. Um, and I don't know that I'm going to progress much further than uh, we did last week. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one, I wanted to have a little bit of latitude to uh, um, to explain the last part because we came to the first warning passage. And I think we should pause every time we come to these warning passages and, and really try and get a handle on it. Um, see if I can uh, address some of the... Uh, questions we had last week. So the, the question box is up here. It's different from a Macy's box this week. It's a CBD box. Cards are next to it. Um, if you'd like, I can pass them around. If not, you just grab one on the way out, write questions if you have questions. Uh, one of the questions was, do I have copies or can I make copies of the 15 study points for uh, studying a book and put them on the website? And that is in process. Haven't got it done yet, but it's in process. A um, couple of questions that were very interesting. Could you talk a bit more about my son, fathered you, firstborn, to make us modern people? This sounds like Jesus is created and he had a beginning. That's a really good question because we understand that Jesus, the man, was born to Mary although he had a divine father, um, he had a full humanity, which is actually the, the section of Hebrews that we have coming next. In chapter 2, from verses 5 through the end of the chapter, is about uh, the humanity of Christ. If I was to uh, kind of break the first part of Hebrews up, uh, the first talk about the introduction, but chapter 1, verses 4 through chapter 2, verses 4, is about uh, Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and that as the Son of God, he is superior to other um, spiritual beings. The second part of this would be chapter 2, verse 5 through 18, which is Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. And we need to understand what that means, Son of God, Son of Man, because you'll see both names uh, ascribed to Jesus the Christ. And so we need to understand what this means about firstborn and, and uh, that he was fathered. Uh, and then the, the second part of the question is, but on the other hand, uh, Jesus is separate from the Father, different, as in they talk to each other, have different jobs, etc., so we need to, this is, this is a really a big question. This is all about the Trinity. This is about how a God could be a single God, one essence, and have three persons. And that it's not that he has three modes. Yes, sir? May I direct one more question that's me for a long time? Yes, you can. <laughs> that when Christ went back to heaven, he says, I must go for the comforter. Yeah, like two things couldn't occupy the same space. Two things cannot occupy the same space. <laughs> it wasn't like Christ could be here finishing up his work, saying goodbye to his friends, and then at the same time the Holy Spirit could always already be here. You know, and Christ and the Holy Spirit both on earth at the same time. Apparently not. Uh, well, no, Christ and the Holy Spirit are on earth at the same time. Right, so why did it one have to go before the other? Because you have all three present at Jesus' baptism. Mm -hmm. 
right? Mm -hmm. The Father speaks from heaven, says, this is my beloved Son, whom I well please. Listen to him. And the Spirit descends as a dove onto Jesus. And so all three are present in one place at one time. So it's not a matter of that um, God and three persons can't occupy the same space at the same time. Rather, it's uh, one of uh, the work that God does. <coughs> so we understand that um, God created the heavens and the earth, and he did that through the Son by means of the Spirit. Okay, so we understand that through Christ all things were created. Right? But the agent of creation, if we go back to Genesis, is the Holy Spirit acting through Christ. So all three are there part of creation. And they have different works in that. And that's what, when, uh, so, and that's a very loaded statement. So, <laughs> and, and we should, we will take more time to discuss that. Let's take that idea of having to do with the work of God to the work of the Holy Spirit as Jesus described it in John. How did Jesus describe the work of the Holy Spirit in John? What's his work? Not what's his person, but what's his work? <coughs> so, if you go to John... Starts in chapter 4. The role of the Holy Spirit is a title that's in the Bible. That's a title that, that a publishing company put in there. For what? I'll make this more understandable. John chapter 14. Oh. Starting in verse 14. Uh, John 14. Oh, 14. Um, my brain is not working all I've been working 12 hour days. Oh, my yeah, God. Two days in a row. So oh, my God. But if you go to John chapter 14, verse 16, he starts talking about the Spirit. And he's talking about the work of the Spirit, or the role of the Spirit, um, in the context of the believer. Right? He says, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. And he talks about the role of the Spirit as essentially, um, well, I'll just go ahead and read. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is about the, um, at the point where we are um, brought into God's presence at the resurrection the day of resurrection, the, the triune God can be present with us by the Spirit being within us in the sense that we are in Christ and we have his eternal life, which is demonstrated on resurrection day, um, and that the, the sealing of that in us as adopted children is the Holy Spirit within us. And so this has to do with the day of resurrection. Uh, we go on in chapter 14 down here. Help me out if you know exactly. 25. Pardon? Okay. Um, so part of the role of the Spirit. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, so again you see the triune aspect of God, will teach you all things, to bring you into remembrance of all that I said to you. So, uh, part of the job, the work of the Holy Spirit, is to teach us and to cause us to remember. Right? What are we remembering? We're remembering the work that God has done in total, all the way up to the cross. That's what we're celebrating today. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us to celebrate Easter. So that's part of the job of the Spirit. If we go on and uh, we keep reading uh, in verse or chapter 16, 
verse 5. It says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow is filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. This is your question, right? But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world of sin, or will convict the world concerning sin, and righteousness, and judgment. So part of the work of the Spirit is conviction. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So that's part of that, that awareness and remembrance part. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. When Christ um, was raised from the dead, what followed that? So he appeared to many people, right? We're going to look at some of the evidence for that this morning. Then what happened? The right. So this is what makes Easter um, the most remarkable thing that's ever occurred in all of history. Is that one was raised from the dead that was fully human and never to die again. That is eternal life. Right? Now, there are others that have been raised from the dead, but they all had natural lives, and they passed, and, and they're awaiting the final resurrection. Jesus is the first in position as fully human in the res- second resurrection, or the resurrection to life. That's because he has life within himself. So this is somewhat talking to the, the firstborn as not born first, but firstborn in position. So position um, in a family in that culture was that the firstborn had special privilege and that he actually had uh, a greater share in the inheritance. He had... Um, well, there's a whole list of things that the firstborn had. He had the right of redemption, right? So uh, if the father, uh, as he passes this right of redemption on to the son, so the right of redemption is is that um, the son has the right to redeem the father's land once the father passes. That's the story of Ruth, right? It's a story about the right of redemption, the kinsman redeemer, right? Well, Christ has the right of redemption. That's really, really, really important because none of us could enter into God's presence if he didn't have the right of redemption. So positionally, he has the right of redemption. That's firstborn, not born first. So this isn't like Jehovah's Witnesses or something that there's a point in time when Christ wasn't and all of a sudden there's a point in time where he is and he happens to be the the firstborn of this type. That would be the understanding of... uh, one, okay, only begotten means not that he is the only, it, it means that he is unique in that type, if that makes sense. So there is no other that is unique in the type of fully God and fully man. He is the only begotten of the Father. Does that help? Okay. So, talking about Christ, his, his role is to come and redeem creation. It was through him that creation came into being as a coordinated work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and that it is his role to redeem. It is the Holy Spirit's role to convict. You can't be convicted of sin until sin has been fully judged. You can't, uh, until the king is sitting on the throne, the righteous king, that judgment is not fully effective. So he has to be there in order for us to be fully convicted of sin. And in fully being fully convicted of sin, we're also fully convicted of righteousness and judgment. And that's what that means. So it isn't that they can't occupy the same place at the same time. In fact, they do. And that there is a communion that is not separated ever among the triune Godhead, but that um, they have different works that to us have temporal uh, placement. 
So the work of the Spirit temporally is placed after the Son ascended to the throne. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit was not present before the Son ascended. He was. He was present in David. He was present with Jesus. He was present in, in the prophets. Right? But there's a specific role that occurs temporally in time after the ascension of Jesus onto the throne. And that it had to occur in that way because we experience God's creation as a sequence of moments. Right? So we are caught in, uh, in time. And as a result of being caught in time, the only way that we can experience God's presence is temporally, as a as a sequence, a series, as history. And, and we're part of history. And that's why God had to enter into history in order to redeem us. And that's just the way that we logically organize things, because that's the way that we experience existence. Does that help or not help? Thank you. So I'm not sure if I fully answered that. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of really heady stuff in there. So I'm trying to give you the near English translation of some of that theology. Um, we had another one here, and this had to do with begotten. Uh, I don't know if I, if I fully answered that, but this is this has to do, and I explained the, the idea of position, and that that's the answer to the cults. The cults that change that, meaning uh, that Christ is only temporal. In fact, some would say that, um, and this is usually if you look at what heresy is, heresy is a denial of uh, one of the aspects of either the incarnation of God, that he's fully God, um, the uh, incarnation in the sense that he's fully man, so that he's both transcendent and imminent, um, or a denial of the resurrection. So it's one of those three things. That if you look at any Christian cult, that's what they're denying. They're either denying the divinity of Christ, which is what um, the Arian movement was that caused the Council of Nicaea to come together and said one essence, three persons. That was in 325 AD, I think. Um, there's a denial of his humanity, and this would be a different kind of heresy, where um, they believed that uh, Jesus was a man, fully a man, but that um, God as Christ only came upon the man and left him at the cross. So the man died, but God was never actually fully present as both God and man. Wasn't that Gnostic? Gnosticism kind of get mixed into all that. Gnosticism is about having uh, an experiential special knowledge of God, and that um, in Gnosticism, because um, we are separated from God, um, the only way that God can become man is through a series of emanations, so that there's a whole bunch of different layers between God and man, and the angels are part of that layer, and it, what happens is that it comes from Greek uh, philosophy that uh, matter is inherently evil. So you could not have true good inhabiting evil, that matter itself is evil, and so God could only come so far, and then you had to have Christ, and he was separated from the true God, right? And so, again, that would be uh, a denial of the, the divinity or the humanity of Christ. In order for God to be present, he couldn't be fully human. Uh, in order for um, him to be fully human, he couldn't be fully divine. So there's three-quarters of the heresies right there. And then the other uh, word is made up of those who deny the resurrection. And you actually see uh, a rebuff to that in the Bible. And that there were those, the Pharisees, that when Jesus was raised from the tomb, right, and the guards, they, they didn't know what happened, right? They bought him off. They said, uh, they went and paid uh, their boss and said, hey, uh, let these guys go uh, make up the story that his disciples came and stole the body. Right? So what are they denying? They're denying the resurrection. And so you see that in the Bible. And these three 
forms of heretic heresy were present, uh, and, and you see them repeated in different forms um, from the time of the resurrection forward. So the enemy desires <coughs> to continue to tell us lies. But the truth is, is that Jesus, fully God, fully man, raised on the third day, never to die again. And that as such, he conquered death. Death no longer has dominion in God's creation. See, when man sinned, he brought death into creation. Death no longer has dominion in God's creation. We have been delivered. And that's where I wanted to go this morning. So, the last question was uh, with reference to angels. And uh, we didn't really talk a whole lot about angels. And the question is, with all the reference to angels, was uh, their angel worship. And as we went through the first part of uh, the first chapter of, of Hebrews, there's a comparison between the Son of God and angelic beings. Understanding that God's making uh, uh, a revelation to us about the full Godhead of the Son. And that some would say, well, like the Gnostics would say, well, you're just an angel, right? So there was pre-Gnosticism at the time that Hebrews was written. It's probably written to refute that, first of all, that uh, the Son, Jesus, was not fully divine. He says, no, he's fully divine. In fact, he has a position above the angels. And one of the uh, rabbinical traditions at the time was that um, prophecy, including the law, was handed down to men, not directly from God, but through angelic host. And that there was no direct communion with God. So, and, I, and it's like I go to Exodus and I say, well, gee, it seems like Moses actually was talking with God, right? But what had happened is there was a corruption over time and that they basically put in angels in between. And there's, there's reasons why they did that. It had to do with uh, different... Uh, um, I'm trying to think of the right word. Uh, the rabbis, I mean, they, they make their life... The scribes memorize the word, right? And the rabbis commented. So they make their living by commentaries, writing commentaries. So you have to come up with something new and novel all the time. Raise some issue that seems new and novel. Jesus addressed some of those new and novel issues. The question was, is it right for a man to divorce his wife? That was a rabbinical issue, commentary issue at the time, by a guy named Hillel. And um, so Jesus addresses the commentary issue. He said, it's just you don't understand what the Word of God is saying. And he gives them a correct understanding. But this rabbinic tradition of angelic intervention to bring us prophecy is one of the things that's being alluded to here. And so it's not so much a worship of angels as it is a refutation saying that, no, the revelation about the Son is direct from God himself. And that's why he starts out, he says, After God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. So he's taking angel uh, worship or angel theology and setting it aside. And he does that very first thing. He says, no, I want you to understand this is a revelation about who Christ is, who the son is. And then we're going to talk about the work of the Son. So first, when you look at the Godhead, the two questions that you want to answer in theology, when you study theology, is what they call um, theology proper. Well, who is God? His person and his work. So when you look at his person, you look at nature and, and character. When you look at work, you look at the aspects of the Trinity that I've been talking about. So with that said, what I thought was the appropriate... So, does that make sense in answering these questions? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I took some time, and that's good, because I wanted to kind of dwell next without moving to uh, the revelation of Christ as the Son of Man, 
full humanity in the Christ school. Address that fully next week. But take a look at the warning passage because the first warning that we get is in chapter two, verses one through four. So in chapter one, you have your introduction, um, and and I gave you the introduction last week, and I'll just really quickly recap the points that I made. Um, the son is superior in relationship, he's superior in ministry, he's superior in eternal being, and that what the, uh, the introduction is about is introducing the son as the heir of all things, uh, through whom uh, the universe is made, he's a divine expression of God, he sustains all things by his authority, which is an important concept, he made purification of sins, um, and that... He's seated at the right hand, so he has authority, he's ruler, and he has the greatest name or status. He is the ultimate authority. So those, that having all been laid, this is about the revelation of who Christ is. So Doug made a, a comment this morning. He said, um, when you look at like revelation, revelation is prophecy looking forward. And so in that sense, it's apocalyptic literature, if you were to look at genre. And apocalyptic literature has three attributes. Um, it's dualistic, good and evil. Um, it's eschatological, which means it's forward-looking, right? And uh, third aspect, we'll talk more about later. But uh, So Hebrews is backward-looking. So it's prophetic, but it's prophetic in the sense of commenting on all of history up through the Son and the work of the Son and the completion of the Son and redemption. And Revelation is forward-looking from redemption to the final, final play of God in creation. So uh, with that perspective, this is about Revelation. And that we need, we read in chapter 2, it says, For this reason... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. So the question is, what have we heard? What have we heard? When I teach evangelism, I always ask people, what is the gospel? Anybody want to venture a guess in the classroom where everybody's going to be listening? What is the gospel? It's a good news. Good news. That literally translated as good news. What was the good news? That you have a mediator to get to God. You have a mediator to get to God. Yeah. Have a mediator to get to God. That was good news. Of course, we had priests. They were mediators. Well, all you have to do is um, you know that you you know that uh, you're expected to fail, and now that now your mediator is uh, you know your way to heaven, your way to God. You know because so. Yeah, and that's why one of the reasons why I read Psalm 118 because it says he is the gate, right? Um, so mediator, gateway. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." Uh, that's good news. But so I know that there's a gate. What is the good news? That you can get through again. it. Pardon? That you can get through it. That you can get through it. That a gate exists and that you can get through it. And not only that, but the way that that occurs is through faith. So I'm going to bring up a, uh, a document here. When I teach evangelism, I always start out with um, what evangelism is. And essentially, evangelism is us working... Uh, with God to proclaim the good news uh, with the intent of converting the listener to faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord so that he or she may be saved, redeemed. And that um, when I say, where is the gospel in the Bible? I always go to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 24. And I'll take you there. Because we need to pay attention, close attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. This is being, if you'll notice here, it says we must pay close attention. That means he's writing not to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. 
that need clarity as part of what the revelation is. So this is written to us. And when we get to these warning passages, you're going to find out they're written to us. This is scary stuff. Because if we take ourselves out of the picture and say, oh yeah, this is written, but it's written to a bunch of non-believers. I'm a believer, I'm exempt from all of these warnings and, and the concerns that come with those warnings. Um, you're not getting the message. In fact, you would be drifting away. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. And you've heard me quote this before. But essentially, uh, and I can pass this out if you or put it on the website if you all want. Um, and I can fill in the blanks for you. Uh, it says, and I'll read from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 uh, through 11. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also you stand, by which also you are saved, since you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you also believe. This is about the gospel. What is it? Three and four. Delivered of, this is the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and then he appeared as, as eyewitnesses could attest. Yes? The reference according to the scriptures, what scriptures is referring to? The, the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Yep. What we know as uh, He's not referring to the law, earlier, right? the law, which is the first five, so twenty-two. the prophets and the writings were all available. Everything that we know of is the Old Testament, plus a whole bunch of commentary, was available to the church and available to Jesus. And Jesus quoted scripture, specific prophecy, pointing out how he was fulfilling it. So when we, we and we can give you a list of uh, prophecies that talk about the death and the resurrection of Christ. It's prophesied, and I point you to Isaiah as the first place to start. So is that referring to any New Testament scripture? No, no New Testament scripture. This is scripture in process, right? As he is writing it, God inspired him to write and say, I want people to clearly understand what the good news is. So if you look at the, the middle of my, my column here, um, I would say that there are two points that Paul's making in his argument. The good news, the gospel, consists of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Two things occur. And he gives two pieces of evidence. You've got to remember, Paul was trained as a lawyer. So he gives two pieces of evidence that that occurred. The first piece of evidence he gives in both cases is the word of God itself. So he is making uh, an appeal to the authority of Scripture and his understanding is, is that, in fact, that authority is irrefutable. It isn't something that is just a good idea, but it's actually the Word of God. And he appeals to the Word of God as evidence. But he doesn't just leave it at an appeal to authority. He also gives hard scientific evidence. He was buried. You don't bury a live guy. And a lot of people made sure that he was dead. A lot of people made sure. In fact, the evidence that we have recorded is that they poked him with a spear. And that, you know, you've probably read the accounts of how water and blood issued forth and what that means in the death process. And if you've ever been around uh, death, you know that there are certain things that occur 
in death. And he was dead, and they buried him. Two pieces of evidence. Authority of God, Scripture, the physical evidence. Resurrection. Authority of God is the first evidence given. The second evidence is eyewitness. And that's what he's giving. So he's saying, the good news is, good news is that Christ died and that it wasn't in vain. That's what Psalm 118 tells us. That his death was to accomplish our redemption, to take our sin upon himself. And that's where we get substitutionary atonement concept. And that he was raised on the third day. Good news. I took a second and watched the Passion of the Christ last night, you know, and mm -hmm. at the very end, of course, he raises, and yet you can see the nail scars in his hands. Yeah. And, and he, in fact, has Thomas put his, okay, so here's, yep. here's a man who's raised from the dead. All his wounds are healed, if you will, but he still has the scars. Yeah. I think that's yeah. interesting, you know, because he could he could have healed the scars too. Right. But you no, know, somehow he's wearing the scars for us or something. He, 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 he is. And that the evidence of what he paid, every time the accuser, whose name is Satan, that's what his name means, the accuser accuses us, Christ will show the payment. Those scars are extremely important. Very important. It's interesting. And, and all of this... that too. He raised from the dead. That's he right. could have certainly healed the All of this is significant. Hmm. Jesus, fully human, had the scars to show that he had paid with his life for ours. Um, all of that is important. There's no detail. So a lot of times we have this idea of Jesus as Superman. We expect him to step into the phone booth, rip off his jacket, and there's the red pistol, you know, throws off the glasses and goes flying out, you know, to conquer tall buildings and stuff. No, Jesus is fully human. He walked with us. He talked with us. He ate dinner with us. He showed his scars. And that is the evidence that he actually paid the price and that he's fully human, the son of God, son of man. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask about the, as far as the scars. Um, I, uh, I was reading one of Paul's other letters, and it's, he said that um, somewhere that it is written that cursed is any man who's hung on a tree, right? Right. So, um, or the, and, then it, and then he took that curse for us, so that's kind of heavy, right? A curse? Yeah. And I don't know what that really referred to, but um, it sounded pretty serious. It is, it is serious. And so, so is that like, what I was asking, is that like Satan's deal with God basically, like, you know, you give me your son, I want him dead, I want him on the on a cross, cursed on, on a tree, and then so the scars are, are the victory, right, for him going, being able to show, but like, right. did what he did. Right, and that would be, if, if uh, <clears throat> I need to get you in one of my Bible classes, um, there, there are different ideas on the atonement. And there is the uh, ransom theory of atonement, as opposed to this substitutionary, penal substitution theory of atonement. So, good Baptist theology says that Christ died in our place, substitute um, for our redemption. Satisfaction theory says that he satisfied the claim of Satan, and that that would be the, the evidence. I would say that, uh, and when you read these arguments, they're very informative, because you're reading you know, commentary on scripture. And if you're a good student, you don't necessarily believe the conclusion, but you look at the evidence, right? And there is merit in the substitution, or the, uh, the penal, not the penal substitution, the uh, ransom theory, satisfaction, um, in that it talks about, I mean, obviously there's scripture to support that, but we need to look at that. I uh, side on the penal substitution that it was for our sin that he died, and I would go to First Peter to support that, that our sin was actually laid upon him. And so perhaps we'll get you into one of my, uh, actually I'm, I'm teaching basic Bible doctrine in North Portland starting this Wednesday, so if you want to join the class, it's really cheap. It costs like 90 bucks. I'll bend your brain around for 10 weeks. Um, so the good news, 
Christ died for our sins, was raised on the third day for our redemption. Right? So what are the results if we have um, what occurred, the good news, what are the results? The results are, what are the results of Christ's death and resurrection? Eternal life. Eternal life. Forgiveness of sin. So when you look at scriptural evidence of what the result was accomplished by the death and resurrection of Christ is that we are forgiven, which is a whole study in itself, and that we have a new life. That is why Easter is so significant. That's what we need to not neglect that revelation. If this is the result to the good news, what is the response? How are we to respond? How now shall we live? With love. With love. That's that's true. There's there's a specific response that is called out in Bible. Response is repent. <laughs> What repentance is, is that you believe the truth of the revelation about God. You believe the truth of the revelation about you, your lostness. And you turn from you being in control of your life, being the authority, being, you know, and Campus Crusade for Christ shows that you're on the throne, and then after salvation, your response is you put Christ on the throne. Right? There's a change, which I call submission, in the heart that is part of repentance where you actually turn from where you were to what is God is offering. Repentance and belief. Or faith. And the sign of that is baptism. That we make a public confession. And you read about that in Romans. You confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord. You will be saved. You will be over here. He did that for you. The response is repent and believe. Really simple. How many people really know that? How many people know what the good news is? Why that's important? And what is the appropriate response that God one day is going to ask every person how did you respond to the good news of my son dying for you <clears throat> what the author of Hebrews says for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it for if the word spoken through angels, again that idea of not angel worship, but the rabbinical uh, philosophy at the time. If the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, speaking of the revelation of God's person and requirement, the Ten Commandments, what we call the law, if that proved unalterable, and received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If the old revelation of who God is and his requirement is unacceptable to you, then how will the new be possible? How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So, you see that the triune God is testifying to you, 
to me that this is true. That there really is forgiveness, there really is new life, we really do need to repent, we really do need to believe. And that this idea of drifting away is a real danger. So this brings into, since this is written to us, um, how does that make you feel? Is it possible to lose your salvation? Is it possible to lose your salvation? And I asked that question in the last three minutes last time, so I'm asking it in the last seven minutes this time. I think yes. No, no. So we got several no's, a yes, I bet you there's some other parts. I think it's yes. And a couple of yeses. And there's a lot of scripture to back that up, but there's a, it's a whole lot easier to believe that one saved always saved. So what do you, it, it, it is, and there's, okay, so, and, and I will take a, uh, one of the points of Calvinism, so if you've studied the tulip model of Calvinism, which is uh, not what Calvin said, but what people today would call Reformed theology, is that we, T is total depravity, U is unconditional election, not up to us, God chooses. Um, L is limited atonement, which means that Christ only died for those that are redeemed ultimately. Those that are in hell, he didn't die for. That would be Calvinism hardline today. Um, T-U-L-I is irresistible calling. That if God unconditionally elects you, he will irresistibly call you. You will be wooed by him and not be able to fight it off. And P is perseverance of the saints. They call it the tulip model. Perseverance means that regardless of what you display in this world, if you're one of the elect and God has irresistibly called you and he uh, atoned for your sin, uh, then you will be saved. It's the idea that regardless of how you feel about it, you've been enlisted into God's army. Yeah. Right? That would be um, the hard that would be the understanding of perseverance of the saints. Now, what I will say is, is that there is merit to both what they call Calvinism, which would say you can't lose your salvation, and Arminianism, which would say that, yes, you can, you better pay attention, right? There, there's scripture to support both. And what I say is I'm not an Easternism. What I believe is I believe the scriptures. And there are scriptures that give me clear warning that say pay attention to drifting away. Drifting away means that you have no anchor, that you're carried by the forces uh, around you, the forces of the world. I would say that a lot of Christians are drifting away today. I say that because I look at, at media and popular culture and stuff that we do and call it, call it Christian, and it doesn't match what I read in the Bible. I got to ask those hard questions. You think they really were Christians then? Maybe they well, were. that's that's what those that are in the Calvinist camp would say. Clearly, he's, he may be writing to the church, but the church has got you know saved and unsaved in it. He must be writing to the unsaved. They're not really Christians. What I will say is this: for assurance of faith, the reason that the Calvinistic model came up, Tulip came up, is because this is one of the fundamental questions that people ask of God. Can I lose my salvation? And what I will say to you, based on Scripture, is that if you are secure in Christ, you have no greater security. That's what we read in Psalm 118. He is my refuge. He is my salvation. That is based on Him, not me. And in that sense, I cannot get out of Christ's hand. And what I understand of perseverance is that God does not give up on me. But can you give up on God? Can you give up on God? As we go through these warning passages, what you're going to see is that there is an increasing escalation. Two believers, and we'll unpack them more in the two believers part more, because we get to some that... It really looks like, man, you can lose your salvation. It's pretty scary. 
if you're worried about losing your salvation, you're not losing your salvation. <laughs> right? That's those that worry about committing the unpardonable sin. In fact, uh, in order to join a, a devil cult, satanic worship, you sign your name in blood in their book and right. it turns black because that's what happens when blood is put on paper and you leave it with the elements, it turns black. And that's evidence that you've given your heart over to, to God. Guess what? Some of the highest sat- satanic priests in history have been redeemed have repented and believed. Yeah, Mike Warnke. Right? So, there is no unforgivable sin to you. The unforgivable sin is in eternity rejecting the person of God. It is unforgiven sin. We'll unpack that more. Realize I'm giving you all sorts of all sorts of things to think about and you probably want to shoot me on the way to the the message this morning. But what I want to assure you of is that this is a very serious warning. This is about drifting away. And we need to think about what drifting away means and how we do that. Because everybody does it. And the author here is saying, pay attention. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Keep your eyes on the road. That's right. Keep your eyes on the road. You don't want to hit a tree off to the side. <laughs> yes, sir? Yeah, it seems like one of the things that the church misses so much, in my, in my view, is that we're talking so much about grace. We're talking about the warm, cuddly side of God. But we're not right. talking about the righteousness, the, you know, this, this side that makes you guys pay attention. That's right. As often. And, and that's why I continually emphasize that. So last week I started with my, my Russia story about the perfect cold and the fractal crystal structures that were about me. Because it was so beautiful, so awesome, words that we used to describe God. And yet, if I stood there too long, I was going to die. God didn't intend me to stand there. He just intended me to catch a glimpse. We need to understand that there is a hard side of righteousness. Hard in the sense that it is not movable. God is a rock. And if you come upon that rock, you can trip upon it and be injured. Or it can fall on you and you'll be crushed. And that's what Jesus said. This is a rock of offense, a rock of stumbling. That rock has become the cornerstone. So I will conclude here, back where I started. And there's much more in here, but I just wanted to take this time today to really reflect on what it is that we're about, what Easter is about. So I'm going to read through Psalm 118, and then we're off. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness everlasting. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently violently, so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. The sound of a joyful shouting and salvation in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die, but live, and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. But the festi- bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let's go ahead and close the prayer real quick. Lord, we are so grateful for who you are and what you have done for us. Um, Lord, truly your loving kindness is everlasting and that you would choose us uh, as your as your prize, uh, Lord, uh, is beyond our understanding and that you would stand and defend us and not give up on us, suffering everything and, and death and giving all in your life. Lord, we just thank you for that. Lord, we ask that you would be with uh, those that are here this morning that maybe have never even been to church before, but they're here because it's Easter. Lord, we ask that they would hear your good news this morning. Lord, we ask that you would be with us as we go from here. Give us words to speak. Help us be those that proclaim who you are to the world. Lord, we thank you for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.